Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Street Smart Success interviews real estate entrepreneurs across all asset classes and markets. Learn with me as I drill down with guests on what it takes to be successful in the world of real estate. So today we have with us a, a highly, highly accomplished guy, but but in addition to being accomplished, he's also a very interesting guy. Not only is he the founding partner at Clear Capital, which is a, a, a very successful multifamily group that's been around 15 or so years. He's not a newbie by any stretch. But to me, what's so darn cool about this guy He's an adjunct professor at UCLA Anderson Graduate School of Management, with his, which is prestigious, but has been voted outstanding professor 16 times by MBA students. I thought that was amazing. And so we have with us uh, Eric Sussman. Eric, welcome to Street Smart Success. Well, thank you, Roger, for that very kind introduction. It's all all downhill from here. But no, thanks for having me. You, you got it. No, I just thought that was so cool. And, you know, it, it's like to have that recognition by your students. It's that, like before having this conversation with you, I thought this guy's going to be a pretty nice guy. And so anyway, you've got a billion dollars under management. I mean, you're not a guy that just got out of a seminar and, and, <laughs> and you've got nine partners in a multifamily deal that's going to fail quickly and miserably. Um, you know, you've done it. And and so I guess my question is this. I always start with the very beginning. You know, you're clearly down there in SoCal. Are you from SoCal, born and raised? Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a rare beast. Uh, you know, I should be on a National Geographic special. Born and raised in Los Angeles. In fact, other than my uh, grad school days, I've lived in Los Angeles my entire life. So, so then you have to do the math and figure out how old I am. But uh, in any event, yeah, I've, uh, I'm, I'm a native, born and raised. Burbank, uh, St. Joe's Hospital in Burbank, Roger, in case you want to really take note. And back then, no offense, Burbank was probably like almost ruralish. <laughs> I think, well, you know, the studios were probably already there. You know, Burbank's even then and today remains pretty much, uh, uh, along with, of course, Hollywood, uh, you know, entertainment capital of the world, I suppose. So Burbank's the younger sister. But in any event, yeah, it, it may have been. Of course, I wasn't really paying attention. I was just happy to be anywhere at that point uh, and, and have a new a new view, if you know what I mean. I got it. Okay. So you're, you're an LA guy. So where did you go to college and then how did you get into real estate? Yeah, those are that's an interesting questions. So I went to UCLA. In fact, uh, just to Roger tell you how unusual a beast I am. And I think I may be one of a kind. Um, you know, my grandfather uh, went to UCLA, graduated in 1930. My mother went to UCLA, graduated in 1960. I went to UCLA, graduated in 1987, as did my wife who also went to law school there graduating in 1990 and of course i'm on the faculty there so uh, my ties to ucla are very deep but I, I i really left ucla and um went into accounting uh got my cpa which is a route a lot of uh, young folks uh, take certainly job security but nowhere near real estate really uh it was really a graduate school professor and I should acknowledge him. I have uh, Joel Peterson, who was the former CEO of Trammell Crow, actually, who I had as a professor, who actually pulled me aside one day. And um, anyways, I won't bore you with all the details unless you want those details, but basically changed my life. Uh, and uh, I, I sort of pivoted to uh, real estate. 
I actually am a uh, too detail oriented, probably for for uh, certain listeners on these podcasts. So not only am I am interested in that, I want to ask about your grandfather. He said he graduated in 1930 from UCLA. So that means he was like born in like 1908, 1910. Yeah, close. 1910. And don't tell me he was from, I mean, obviously he lived in LA, but he must have come from somewhere else, the East Coast, Europe, something. No? Yeah, you're, you know, Roger, you're obviously right. It's the, uh, I guess we can say the, the, the Jewish diaspora sort of story. Uh, my grandfather was born in Brooklyn in 1910. But came out to uh, the West Coast, frankly, because his father, my great grandfather, had some issues, health issues, pulmonary problems. And so uh, they recommended the uh, West Coast weather. <laughs> Thank goodness. Good call there. The other side of my family were, you know, the Eastern European uh, immigrants uh, came over actually on the Lusitania in 1902 uh, from Kiev, actually, from Ukraine. So uh, um, that's where my roots are, anyhow. Wow. Okay. Well, not unusual. I, I, uh, you know, I like to talk about my guests and not so much about me, but I, I don't know why you're making me think this. I, I, in a weak moment a couple years ago, wanted my, find out about my lineage and, uh, you know, paid a hundred bucks or whatever to 23andMe or Ancestry. And it came back that I'm about 137% Eastern European Jewish. And I'm yeah, like, I, I don't think I need to pay a hundred bucks to know this. Roger, your math is bad, but in any event, <laughs> <laughs> you got me beaten by 37%, my friend. You know, it, it is true for those of your listeners who happen to have those, those roots. Yeah. When you do a 23 and me test, it's sort of disheartening. You want to know I'm part poodle, part lab, part terrier. And it just says Ashkenazi Jew, basically. I know, you know, and that's, that's basically your entire DNA read. So I guess I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mutt like most of us are at some level, but uh, any event, yeah, that's the story. <laughs> Got it. So, so what did then Joel Peterson, uh, CEO of Trammel Crow? I don't even know if they're still around, but they were huge yeah. at one point. They oh, are yeah, okay. What, oh, absolutely. All right. What did he tell you? You know, he just pulled me aside, and you know, uh, it's funny how life. You have these sort of pivot points in life, and he said, "Hey, Eric, you know, you're." Um, one of the top students, another top student in, in the class. And have you thought about real estate as a career? I just said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, you really should. And in fact, um, I'd like you to get involved in this project. It's really an academic slash empirical based uh, competition with Cal. I went to Stanford for graduate school. Anyways, uh, and it's UCLA has the same kind of thing against USC. It's called the NAOP case competition. I said yes, and uh, we subsequently had to analyze a, a site up in Santa Rosa and really turn what was an academically based project, but really had um, strong market roots. And that sort of took me on the path. We we kicked Cal's uh, rear end, as I recall. Uh, anyways, and I, that's what got me into real estate. I you know, went on to interview for jobs then, and anyways... I'm sure you're going to ask me the rest of the story, but that's basically where we are as of now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what was the path that got you into doing what you're doing now? Yeah. So, uh, it's a little bit circuitous, like a lot of things in life. I, I, 
Price, I was at Price Waterhouse, now Price Waterhouse Coopers, back after uh, undergrad and before grad school, and they had actually paid for my business school uh, tuition and the rest of it. Of course, the quid pro quo was that I go back and give them essentially two years of indentured servitude, which was more than reasonable, it seemed to me. Uh, maybe it was three, but in any a relatively modest number of years to get all my tuition that they had paid for and housing and books and the whole the whole kid and caboodle. And I made a decision after, you know, talking to Professor Peterson that I wasn't going to go back. So that was one big decision that I, I was going to have to repay that debt, which I ultimately did. Um, and I, you know, the problem with if you're interested in getting into real estate as an MBA student, and I don't know how many of your listeners are in that kind of boat or were at one point in their lives, uh, they don't recruit routinely on uh, business school campuses, um, maybe in the broker world, because they're constantly needing, you know, a slew of younger folks to sort of fill in the bottom of the pyramid. But they don't, they're kind of haphazard, whether you if you want to get in a, you know, on the buy side of real estate, let's say private equity or an investment fund. It's pretty much a catch as catch can you got to go, uh, you know, out and hunt for the job. And that's what I did. So I sort of got a job on my own outside of on campus recruiting. And then uh, shortly thereafter, started my own gig. And anyways, Clear Capital, as you said, was started about 15 years ago. So a question for you. It said you're managing partner in 07, uh, which to me sounded like a. you probably didn't know it in 07, but was going to turn into very quickly a very interesting time. And I and, and it was curious to me, I guess, mm-hmm. what did you, what were things like? What did you learn 08, 09 that I guess informed kind of your approach to what you do today? I think that is maybe uh, the most important question. You know, look, there's that old saying, the, the rising tide lifts all the boats. Uh, the academics call it attribution bias because we have to be a little more wonkish. But I've always said that when you have bear markets, challenging times, crises, that's where you really separate wheat from chafe in any discipline, frankly. Uh, real estate being no different. Uh, if you ask me, you know, what I'm most proud of, look, the origins of clear capital even go back, you know, to the 90s, of course, because we were all, all the partners and I were in real estate earlier. But in all of our, uh, syndicated deals, we've never lost a single penny of equity ever. We've never lost money. And and part of it is because we're in the right space. Multifamily has been a great place to be. But th- it sort of goes to the lessons of the crisis. I mean, the, the, look, excessive leverage is really the fundamental problem. Uh, it's what it's it's what really creates crises many times, excessive leverage. Uh, it also destroys tremendous wealth in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that sort of generally transfers wealth from owners to lenders. So the key in this damn business is holding on. Look, I mean, you think about today, let's say pricing in in our space is maybe down 5% in the face of higher interest rates. Look, we may be on the talking in in, in five years from now, and I will pretty much guarantee real estate prices will be higher in five years than they are today. So the key is holding on, not losing your properties, not being excessively levered, uh, making sure you've got reserves as needed to weather the storm. And of course, being in the right segment certainly helps. And you know, multifamily has been on fire for a long time, obviously. So what you're saying is, I'm, I'm, I'm making a statement, but it's really a question, is what you're saying that what you took from that, even though you did not 
over leveraged because you didn't lose a penny of your investors, you know, money. Uh, are you saying that you saw others that were overly leveraged and, and, and still that ultimately is the, is the key number one thing you learned from that experience? Roger, no question. You want to, you want to sort of gauge whether a downturn, which is, you know, normal and recurring is going to turn into something else far more significant and, and sort of crisis like is look at the debt markets it's all about leverage leverage is what really takes a downturn and turns it you know into a <laughs> turns a little uh small snowball into something much more serious and and that's it so you know we're very prudent about how much leverage we take on any project and also you stop and think about multifamily. I'm sure we're going to talk about it. You know, look, look, multifamily is much better equipped to deal with high leverage anyhow, because you diversify your rental stream over a large number of folks. And so as long as you've been reasonably conservative and prudent in your underwriting, you should be all right. But you take, you know, think about like, let's say hotels or hospitality, okay, which is not only very cyclic. But then if you just by definition, understanding that and very volatile when you have down markets, you can't over lever there. You better be very prudent on your debt side or, you know, you may be handing over the keys uh, or the nowadays, I guess your iPhones open all the doors. But uh, to the lender, if you're not uh, if you ain't careful <laughs> in, hosp in hospitality, you really have to be careful, Roger, because, again, you, you have the cyclicality, of course, very susceptible to economic changes. And so if you've got a bad capital structure, excessive debt on your hospitality assets and you hit a, a, a you know, real downturn, think about COVID. I mean, unless your lender is going to work with you, you are likely going to have to hand over the keys and you just don't want to be in that situation. And that, that's why there's far more foreclosures in, in, in hospitality. And you saw that in the, in the, in the great financial crisis uh, than you did in, in multifamily where there were very few. So two part question is, are guys that are doing, you know, bridge stuff at 80% loan to cost, you know, they don't necessarily have to be newer operators, but seems like a lot are. Do you see some of them having to get in their properties, uh, you know, taken back? A, and what kind of debt do you guys do? Yeah. Okay. A couple questions. It's hard to know because visibility and transparency into some of these private dens, uh, debt funds book of business is, is lacking. It's one of the big changes, of course, let's say the last five years, uh, even in our space where some private funds have supplanted, I won't say maybe supplanted is an overstatement, but certainly been an alternative debt source to Fannie and Freddie, uh, the life companies sort of the traditional lenders. Uh, and you're right, Roger, the, the foundation of your question is they've been more uh, more aggressive, more flexible, whatever words you want to use to describe the debt. Now, whether that will lead to actual uh, notices of default and foreclosures, I, I don't know. In the multifamily space, even where they've used, let's say, 80% of percent loans, I don't think that will be a problem. And look, the flip side of 80% leverage is 20% equity. At UCLA Anderson, we like to use very advanced mathematics. <laughs> and, you know, so in theory, unless there's a real significant drop in asset values or rents, I think we, we're not going to be nearly in the situation we were 15 years ago. But on an individual asset basis, I have no doubts there'll be some some workouts and troubled uh, properties, but not in multifamily or, or housing as I see it. 
Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. What kind of uh, debt are you guys doing these days? Yeah, that is a, so you'll you'll laugh actually. Your question is not just timely, Roger, but actually uh, it, it, there's a detailed answer because there are four partners at Clear Capital and we were debating, we're actually doing some takeout financing on a property and we literally could not agree on whether to do fixed versus variable. We ended up flipping a damn coin, okay, over a $25 million loan plus whether we should go fixed or variable. Uh, variable one, I was in the fixed camp, so I lost that particular uh, wager. Um, but there you go, which goes to speak to how challenging it is, right? Even in real time, making decisions on on, on these types of debt. We tend to do sort of 70% debt levels. Um, you know, to get to 80%, the underwriting has to be pretty damn aggressive in most cases. And and I don't like to stretch on the underwriting. I mean, right, there's, there's, that, old, there's that old joke uh, of how can you make any real estate investment deal go well is given MBA Microsoft Excel. Um, <laughs> and, you, know, you can probably say that in M&A too, or any, you'll fill in the blank with any investment. Given MBA Excel and everything looks great, but that's a projection and we've got a lot of uncertainty and boy, um, you know, I get asked that question a lot on inflation and rents and the rest of it. So that's what we tend to do, 70%. The bigger question, at least for us, has been fixed versus variable in, in, a, in an inflationary market, which is kind of an interesting uh, debate. The, the partners that wanted variable, what, what's their case for that? Their case is, as I would say, probably a few, but one, of course, is the delta. I mean, the, the, the interest rate that's charged on variable rate debt, by definition, is materially less than on a fixed rate. Uh, security, especially when you've got inflation, uh, inflation. So it's that spread, right? Which is very attractive, right? You're, you sit there and say, gee, you know, gosh, if I take the lower rate on the, on the floating, I'm going to have much better cash flows. And that is true. I mean, there's no question all else equal. If you, if you, if even in status quo, if everything stayed the same, your cash flows, of course, are going to be much higher on floating rate debt because the interest rate is lower. I mean, so that's number one. You obviously do rate caps and derivatives to hedge. So they're like, come on, Eric, we do hedge, you know, some of that ups, that risk in case we do have higher rates. Of course, the flip side there is those don't, those don't la those are like two to three years, maybe you can go out and hedge, but then you still have uncertainty. You know, I think it's the last piece, honestly, Roger, is flexibility. Floating rate debt invariably comes with the ability, more flexibility to get out It's because the prepayment penalties and uh, the amount you might have to pay to to refinance or exit the debt is much lower than on fixed rate, where you have you know defeasance or yield maintenance. You may have heard of these things where you basically have to give up a limb or a firstborn child to get out of the debt. So, and well, actually, given my kids on a day, that may be a reasonable offer I might accept. But, <laughs> but <laughs> my wife might have a different take. 
give away and make it a, you know, for enough rate reduction, I might consider that. We'll see. I'm I'm right there with you. Fortunately, neither of our wives are likely to listen to this podcast. Um, (laughs) Touche. Yeah. So, so I I looked at your portfolio and it looks like you're doing or have done, I should say, and maybe you've pivoted. You could, you could tell me, looks like you've done a lot of, you know, seventies, eighties stuff. And I guess what is the, the philosophy, the thinking around asset class? Has it changed or, 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 you know, what, what's your view there? Yeah, that's again, a, a really fun question to think about too, because I look at, at where we started our firm, the origins of our firm were really infill LA. We did what we used to call, uh, they're probably still called 1920s brickers, apartment buildings constructed of marginally reinforced brick. And you've all seen it kind of 1920s, 30s product. That's where we started because a lot of infill Los Angeles, uh, as you know well, Roger, you know, Koreatown, Echo Park, Silver Lake, Hollywood, these sort of infill locations, that was sort of a lot of the construction type. So that's where we really cut our teeth. And so, yes, we've moved up in the decades. Broadly speaking, look, we we buy pieces of blank and we make them nicer pieces of of blank. Uh, <laughs> I know that's not a real articulate. Okay. That will not appear on the clear capital mission statement strategy. Um, but actually I have a story there. I'll have to tell you, uh, I really would love to tell you about my father and looking at real estate in the 19, uh, well, about 20 years ago. Anyhow, but I mean, Roger, what happens invariably because we're buying value add, you, you know, you characterize our firm well, and I know we're not the only ones uh, at this particular, you know, prom yeah we we do value add multifamily that invariably takes you to older product by definition because that's where the yeah the properties need some tlc some love uh, improvements renovations and just taking care of good old deferred maintenance uh so we really do kind of you're absolutely right i would say pre-2000 is you know between 1900 and 2000 is our is our is our is our our property types these days, but actually probably 1950 to 2000. When, when newer sponsors come to me and newer to me, because you know, you and I are, are older guys, I hate to say it, but we are. So newer to me means if you've been doing it five, six years, you're brand new. I mean, to me, you know, I started in 2016 oh. is brand new. And when they come to me with value add to invest in, especially if it's seventies for sure, sixties, seventies, I'm always leery because I'm thinking these guys are not going to have a realistic sense of CapEx, reserves, uh, things, the contingencies that can go wrong. When I talk to somebody like you that, that, that tells me you've never lost a dollar and, and you've just been doing it a long time, I'm a lot more confident. But can you speak to that and just, just the notion that you, you don't know what's behind the walls, period, and you just never know what you're getting into? Oh. Look, what's that old, uh, is it Mark Twain? Youth is wasted on the young. I mean, look, uh, these, uh, these wrinkles on the forehead, you know, uh, do count for something, I would say. And, uh, you know, the reality is, of course, it, my students even, and, and the students I've had for the last decade at, at Anderson, they've never seen a down market. I mean, to them, you know, I, I'm sitting there up in, you know, in, in this class, I'm doing with very bright, folks experienced folks you know and i'm talking to them about whether it's the dot-com crisis and even the great financial crisis it's 15 years ago these students were in i don't know junior high school maybe i mean they were worried about you know 
we can fill in the blanks with what what thirteen year olds are are thinking about. I'll leave that to the listeners' uh, discretion there. But um, right, they've never seen a down market. They don't know you know what that looks like. And so to me, right, having seen all sorts of cycles, understanding that prices just don't go up in a linear fashion. That you do have downturns. That inflation. Look, think about inflation. I mean, I I tell my students, you know. What's inflation? They have no idea. They've never seen interest rates more than, you know, two or three percent in their lives. And I'm thinking, oh, you should remember 1979. Of course, um, of course, if you were alive in 1979, you probably don't remember it for a whole set of other reasons. But um, right. You and I remember, Roger. I mean, we remember the gas lines and and Jimmy Carter and the transition to Reagan and Volcker and the rest of all those those uh footnotes in history. And, and, and yeah, they, they definitely change your perspective. Just like people who look just like folks who were born and lived during the depression that colored their perspective their whole lives. They, and this generation will, I don't know, be thinking about how crypto affected them and the, and the huge drop in crypto. Perhaps I think some of them will have lifelong scars over what's happened in crypto and the, and the rest of us, Roger are like, well, you know, told you so, okay. told you so. <laughs> welcome to life. Welcome to investing. Exactly. <laughs> You know, uh, welcome to the party. You, you've learned a valuable lesson. Exactly. So you, so Eric, so do you think in maybe, you know, I don't know what circles you, you might just like, hey, we do our own thing and you've certainly are and have been very successful. I don't know if you get involved in broader community of stuff. You may have absolutely no need to, but do you think that there are, you know, newer folks that are going to really stu- stub their toe buying value add stuff because they just don't know how to underwrite it? Uh, you know, it's, it's a really hard question to answer. Look, I, I, in multifamily and housing generally, you have a, a lot more uh, buffers and tailwinds than you do, let's say, if you're doing a value add project in retail or something like that. I mean, look, you can't outsource where people live. Uh, the diversification across a number of tenants in, in our world is much greater than, let's say, you're doing creative office or you're doing uh, retail or something like that, where you can have a single, you know, a single one of your anchor, your anchor tenant can go dark or go bankrupt. I mean, it, and, you know, you're in a you know, world of hurt. I mean, take any retail shopping center with a bed, bath and beyond or something like that. OK, I mean, you know, um those are going to, that's going to really hurt if and when they, they, they go under. We don't have that issue. So the insurance, I really don't know, Roger. Look, there's no question that, uh, they'll, this younger group of investors is going to, is facing some losses and downturn probably. But as long as they're not excessively levered and their underwriting was reasonably prudent, I think they'll be fine. I don't expect nearly the sort of foreclosures and, and, and whatnot that we saw in the financial crisis. If nothing else too, Roger, I'll say, I'll throw in there is look, lenders balance sheets can't speak to the funds because of lack of transparency, but the money center banks, regional banks, those that we have transparency into their books, they're in decent shape. They're not nearly as levered. Uh, they've been much more fiscally responsible. They've made loans to much higher FICO score borrowers and, you know, that sort of thing. And so I, I, I think that will serve as a, a buffer to even the younger, the young ones that, uh, you know, are, are wading into the recessionary pool for the first time. Welcome. 
Interesting. You're, uh, I, I love your perspective and you are clearly, I don't know if I want to say you're an optimist, but you are not a pessimist by any stretch and a fairly dispassionate objective view. I'm a cynic and, and I kind of look at it like, you know, these guys are, some of them are, you know, 80, 80 loan to cost, which might not be super excessive with bridge debt, interest rates go up. They, they figure that they, you know, that they're going to put in 15,000 a unit and get, you know, a, a rent bump of 250 bucks a month, which as of this second might be realistic or maybe six months ago realistic. But I'm thinking this, you know, when you talk about C class stuff, maybe even B, lower B, these people have got to be, the tenants have to be getting crushed with gas prices and inflation. And if they don't get their $250 rent bumps and the interest rates continue to go up, I can't see that there's not going to be carnage might not be the right word, but I don't know if it's the wrong word or do you say to me, yeah, that all kind of makes sense, but it's just so resilient that it, and there's so many uh, tailwinds for the category that they'll survive. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, let me just say, Roger, I'm glad you're cynical. Uh, we need cynics. The fact is, if everyone agrees and there's consensus, usually you're, you know the exact opposite is going to happen. I mean, when you have sort of everyone in, in agreement on where an economy is, everyone, you know, think about where everyone is bullish, the likelihood that that is the sort of the tail end of the bull market is significant. So we actually, your cynicism is actually a healthy and good thing. When I read, uh, you know, the pessimist, because look, I'm optimistic just because I know history. Uh, I'm a student of history. I know cycles. Uh, history tells us this. There's nothing new about downturns. There's nothing new about crises. I could reel every single one of them off to you from the 20th century and, and you know, what happened. Um, and so historical perspective is super important. Now, you are absolutely right. There are plenty of headwinds, and we know the headwinds that are out there, whether it's, again, the inflation print this morning, which is, you know, high. We all know what's going to happen at the pump and food prices and the rest of it. Um, but at the same time, while there are those headwinds, you got tailwinds and significant tailwinds. You know, we have undersupplied housing by millions of units for a number of years. So there's just that ultimate big picture perspective. You can't outsource where people live. They can double up and triple up. And, and my middle daughter, my 24 year old just moved out of our house a few weeks ago. Congratulations. <laughs> That's cool. Celebration time. Thank you. Um, you know, it's not just a song for the NCAA tournament. Fortunately, she's not going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> and she, my 24 year old daughter, are you kidding? Yes, I, I can. We can both. Uh, she doesn't listen to me when I'm talking to her live, Roger, let alone on, on, on a recorded podcast, for God's sake. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is that think about higher rates. The higher rates in inflation mean that first time home buyers and a lot of folks that were hoping to get in on the game are going to be renting for the foreseeable future. So that's converted a lot of potential buyers into renters. You know, so there are headwinds, there are tailwinds. And I'll just throw another food for thought. And there is, you know, higher wages. And actually, it's a good thing. This particular set of inflationary uh, pressures has resulted in, you know, increases in wages. Nationally, we're up about 5% wages. I think we've got more to come. So that's how employers are going to have to respond. We're going to see a shrinking of wealth and equality and more from the haves to the have-nots or the middle class, which has had to happen in the United States, in my opinion, for a long time. That's happening. 
And so I think it's also uh, going to allow tenants to basically stay in their units because employers have to have that anyhow. So I, I think you're you're right, and your alarm bells are, are your and cynicism are, are well founded and healthy actually. But I do think that uh, tailwinds are more than any worthy adversary to counter. How do you guys, are you guys vertically integrated? What does that look like? Cause I know you're in, you're in, uh, you know, a lot of different markets. Yeah. Another, another real, you know, interesting question. So vertically integrated, you think if I got real wonkish and thought about a real estate value chain, you know, in terms of all the services that you need, a lot of folks can talk about, you know, you know, vertical integration. We do have a captive management company, uh, Clarion Management. So within California, about half of our portfolio, it's by a couple thousand units, we do self-manage. We did take that, uh, take that in-house outside of the state. And we haven't really talked much about that, but you know, there are assets in places from, you know, Oregon and, and Arizona and Colorado, et cetera. Those we third party manage. We have third parties, which is a, you know, adventure into a, a, itself. Uh, we have used the, the folks like Graystar and the FPIs, the big behemoths, and we've tried to find more maybe nimble local entrepreneurial players in, in the markets as well. But it's, it's a, it's a, it's that part is, has been vertically integrated. And that's really it. I mean, so property and asset management vertically integrated, but that's really, I think that's pretty much what most folks in our shoes might do in terms of integration. Shame on me. I did not realize you guys were in California and what markets and are you concerned with rent control getting more restrictive? You know, what does that look like? What markets am I worried about? Rent control? All of them. I mean, no, I know. I, I hear I you, mean, but it seems like, yeah, go ahead. No, but Roger, look, I, I, I'm, we're, you know, kind of be quipping it's tongue in cheek, but th there's some truth to it because you think about affordability issues and higher rents and you think about politicians and how do they respond? Look, you're in California, my friend. You know, the, the state's talking about giving everyone what a gas card or a thousand bucks or something for gas. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we'll see what, what the latest you know, harebrained thought is, but politicians go for the easy, easy ones. So rent control is coming to a community near you, um, likely or at least the pressure, the political pressure will be substantial because look, even my, my red friends, those that lean on the right, they, they would love rent relief. They, I mean, they, again, who doesn't, I mean, every, no one likes socialism until it's for them. Right. <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, but there's truth to that. And the evidence is supports that notion. So rent control is a reality in California. Obviously it's reality in places like New York, New Jersey, and, you know, Oregon and, and Washington state. I mean, you know, you think about the blue places, but hey, I, there, I read about a mobile home community or mobile home uh, assets in Colorado talking about rent control. There's a couple of communities in Florida they're talking about, I read recently. Uh, I think uh, Boston actually, Boston's the only place that had rent control, voted it out, and then reinstated it. So Boston has gone through a bunch of cycles. So um, I think that's a, a trend for the future, Roger. Your point's well taken. Uh, the government are, is going to be our partner uh, in some markets, or at least the British are coming <laughs> and um, we better plan accordingly uh, because you're, you're absolutely right. Public policy and real estate are challenging bedfellows. How's that? Are your California properties down by you, mostly LA? Or are you up into the Tri-Valley and what, like where? Yeah, we're all over the place. We're as far north I mean, as Central. I mean, I mean, Central Valley. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh it's okay. Yeah. Hey, 
Yeah, the Tri-Cities you met, uh, Pasadena, Burbank, and Glendale in the Central Valley. We've had properties in a lot of those places. I mean, you know, the hottest real estate market for rentals last year, well, depends which survey you read, was either Fresno or Boise. So, you know, usually the words hot and real estate don't go in the same sentence when you're talking Fresno. No disrespect, by the way. I, 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 love I, did, not, I, did, not, I did not know that about Fresno. That's interesting, but okay. Yeah, Fresno and Boise. It was sort of a uh, an MMA battle last year, which was the hottest real estate market, which is shocking wow. to actually think about, right? I mean, sort of sort of tells you where things are. But we're basically from all over the place. I mean, we have property at least personally from San Diego up to Sacramento and everything in between. So um, most of it's not rent controlled. I thought well, the state. Local. I thought the state had a five percent annual cap for, for only certain assets so it's it gets complicated and, and that's a whole other issue depends on where you are and what the, the local regulations are and how they interface with the state rules and the age of your building so it just depends um the other thing too roger i'll just say is depending on where you are if you have high turnover because everywhere in the state you have vacancy d control so no matter what the rent control rules might be as onerous as they might be in place like the people's republic of santa monica but did I just say that? That's the, that's just the. Well, you say, you know, up here, it's the People's Republic of Berkeley. Yeah, People's Republic of Berkeley. Just said tongue in cheek, of course, my, right. or my West Hollywood friends as well. You know, with strong forms of rent control, you know, you, you, I, I see you have to be just thoughtful in your underwriting and recognize uh, the realities of what happens. But if there's enough turnover, if you're dealing with enough small units that have turnover, that is a big mitigant because as the, units vacate, you're allowed to raise the rents to market. That's basically everywhere. So, um, you know, you just have to make sure you're underwriting and you strategize appropriately with each individual asset. But you, your question is a very important one. <laughs> well, and you know, there was that absolutely adorable, uh, movement a couple years ago to create vacancy control that they, they, that got blown out of the water. Thankfully that, that, that guy, forget his name. Well, that, that'll probably come back, but that's the opportunity right there in California, uh, is getting markets so far, uh, you know, buying, you know, with a number of units that are so far under market rent to just wait long enough, they vacate. And frankly, even, even rent control, that's been the name of the game actually in San Francisco is people have made a fortune off buying, you know, rent control has helped investors that have a longer time horizon because you could buy something that's, you know, renting for two grand, but the market's 4,500. You just have to wait it out, but you throw vacancy control in and it's a, a bad ending to a bad movie. Well, it, 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 Roger, I would also add, look, you know, to my, to those on the far left who are concerned about housing affordability and homelessness, like we all are, the reality is that that doesn't help. That hurts, actually. And, you know, economists, look, economists may not agree on a lot. You know, that, there's that old, and maybe there's that old uh, economist joke that you should cut off every economist's left hand so they can't say on the other hand, right? I mean, they're always, <laughs> uh, you know, economists disagree on all sorts of stuff. It's part of, you know, on policy. But it's funny, Roger, the one thing they pretty much all agree on, like 99% agree that rent control doesn't work. It's a failed policy. You know, any kind of price ceilings and sort of uh, tariffs, they're, they're, any economist will tell you it's bad policy. It doesn't solve the underlying thing you want to solve. And there are other ways that are far superior to do that. But, you know, as I said, politicians, they're going for the low hanging fruit and rent control is sure an easy one. Got it. Interesting times ahead. Eric, do you guys do just single assets or you guys do funds? 
Yeah, another another really important uh, issue, and something I talk about a lot with, with students and all that. We've been historically a, a single asset syndicator, right? So we got a deal, I got a project, and we raised capital for that specific project. That's the DNA and origins of our firm that go back to the '90s. Uh, we have done a fund. We're looking to raise a fund. I remember one just anecdote because this really highlights when I we. Uh, the last time I really sought to raise a fund, maybe five, six, seven years ago. And there was a lot of my core investors say, Eric, you know, I get it. Sounds interesting. But when you want, when you first identify that, that, that first asset that you want to acquire for the fund, let me know. And we look at it and I'll, I'll maybe I'll invest in it. I said, no, 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 no. That's, that's, a, that's exactly what I don't want to do. But I realized after having that phone call with about 10 investors, accredited investors, that was their mindset, was just, you know, this idea of a blind pool. We like you. We know the strategy. We trust you. But we want to see and touch what we're buying. You know, I get it. So that has been the battle. Uh, so it's a longer answer to your question. We've really been single asset syndicators, but we are. We just actually finished our institutional pitch book yesterday. Actually, of all things, yesterday it went. It's going up today, I think. So we'll see. Wish us luck. You, you uh, mean you mean to do a fund? Yeah, to do a fund. Uh, okay. Look, a fund is 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 much easier from a management standpoint, of course. I mean, it, you know, anyone will tell you who has to raise money. Raising money ain't no fun. And it's not really a value add as far as our firm goes. I mean, I know it's one of the things we have to do, but it sure would be nice to have, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in just commitments. And then, you know, you find something and you don't have to worry about the capital raised part of it. But anyhow. From from your perspective, uh, the operator perspective, in addition to it, it's easier, the cap raise part of it for the obvious reason, right? You're not having to go to the well over and over and over again. Is there what would be like the second and third benefits to you as an operator to do a fund? Well, I really think it, it's, it's for, for me, I'm not even sure there's second and third. It's really first. It's just I don't have to sit there and think about the capital raise on the equity uh, so I can focus far more attention on what really matters and creates value. Raising equity, while it is important, does not create value. I mean, it just doesn't. It's just one of the things you got to do. That's true for anyone seeking venture or angel money as well. That is one, two, and three for me. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's any other advantages per se. I mean, because broadly speaking, look, you're still capitalizing every individual asset on its own. You're going to get every lender is still going to underwrite and finance each individual asset owned by the fund. So that doesn't really change. Um, I mean, People maybe a... People, the only thing people, I can say, I don't know, people, it would be longevity, right? So you can say your fund is seven years, and so you have a set period of time as well where for, for both parties, you know, look, this is the life of the fund, and barring anything unforeseen, this is it. So you know when you'll be able to get out, and we will know as well, too, when we'll start monetizing assets. And that's really, from my perspective, it, Roger. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry to interrupt you. P people were, um, you know, I, I heard a number of sponsors say, because it seems like in the last couple few years it's been more prevalent in saying that in this environment which is now changed but uh that hey you know you will be taken more seriously as buyers to sellers because we've got the money already set aside and therefore therefore you limited partner are benefited by this because we can get you know more and better deals I would say fair enough, all else equal, that's true. But if you've been around as long as we have and done enough transactions, I don't think there's any reputational difference. They either you got a track record of performance or or you don't. Um, the other thing I would add to Roger is that's why sellers have traditionally loved 1031 buyers, right? Folks that had 1031s because they knew they had the uh, 
uh, IRS sort of uh, hammer over their heads. And so they knew that they had a buyer who was likely to perform and close as opposed to, uh, you know, paying Uncle Sam. Um, so, and there's so much 1031 money around as well. So I imagine sellers have pretty much had their pick of the litter in terms of whether it's a fund, an experienced operator uh, who does single assets like Clear Capital or 1031 buyers um, who are all in line at the deli trying to, you know, get deals. This has been enlightening and um, I so much appreciate it. Here's the, the stumper. And sometimes you just get a blank silence. And, and I, in, uh, I've heard this done on another podcast and I love it. And so I'm going to ask you this. If something comes to mind, great. If not, we'll move on. But here it is. <laughs> He's getting ready. And here it is. What is something that people don't know about you? Okay. That's, that's a stumper. There's no pause there. First of all, Roger, I have been teaching at UCLA Anderson for almost 30 years. I've had 5,000 students or so. I've got asked some questions that I still am shocked that were asked. So there ain't no question you can ask me that would, would per se stump me because I've probably been asked it before. The one thing that you, you should know about me, which is, I think it's in- interesting. It's quite unusual is that I actually, um, sold a sitcom pilot to Viacom in 2000 that, there was for a period of time, even when I was teaching and I, I, I was in this real estate business, I, I always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I always joked that if uh, I found Aladdin's lamp that I would have, and I had three wishes, I one of them would be that I would have been reincarnated as Jon Stewart. Uh, the others in wishes involve sex and pizza, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I, I, I actually did. I actually did a lot of comedy writing in the 90s and actually did a bunch of pitching to the studios. And I actually sold a pilot to uh, to Viacom for a whopping $2,500, uh, which I still have the check copy. Anyhow, um, what happened to it? You know, they assigned a, a showrunner, an executive producer, because I was a nobody. I mean, other than I was an interesting person with an interesting CV who was trying to become a comedy writer. And they assigned a showrunner from The Nanny, uh, someone who had actually been the executive producer on The Nanny. And um, so it went, we, we went into development. And like a lot of things in, in Hollywood, it um, it did die a merciful death. Just couldn't, just couldn't come together. And um, the, not, the one of the nicest things that the head of, the, of Viacom uh, TV at the time told me, said, Eric, you know, um, we actually think you have a lot of talent, but if you really want to do this, you're going to have to commit to it and stop teaching and give up the real estate. And, I, you know, that was the end of that discussion. I was like, well, I have to pay the more. Speaking of, of not losing money, Roger, I wasn't going to start losing money in my personal life. So you're like, uh, I'm passionate, but not that passionate. And there it goes. And I, and I, to this day, my students will tell you that maybe that's why I win those awards to some degree is, uh, it's edutainment to some degree. I wouldn't argue with that. I try to make my classes fun and, uh, hopefully I succeed, um, more times than not. <laughs> Sounds like you have, uh, if one were to be so inclined to find out more about Eric Sussman or clear capital, how would, how would one go oh, about doing e- that? Easy. I, well, I appreciate that very much. Look, the one thing you, you, you may be interested in as well as the listeners is, uh, you know, I write a fairly lengthy quarterly newsletter, no obligation. It's, it's somewhere between 15 and 25 pages of my thoughts on the economy markets, 
uh, certainly housing, obviously, and real estate generally. Um, so you can go to our website, uh, clearcapllc.com, clearcapllc.com. You can uh, link up with me on LinkedIn. That's where you and I found each other, Roger, as I recall, and uh, find out about us there. And, and again, look, I, I'm a teacher at the core. I, it's in my DNA. And uh, so, look, I'm all about education and even just teaching people about what to think about when they're investing in these in these markets, which are causing a lot of uneasiness, which is not a bad thing as much as it's uncomfortable. Fantastic. Eric, uh, I will hope to do this uh, again with you uh, maybe in uh, 2023 and we'll we'll compare uh, where we were in 2022 on uh, July 13th. And I very much appreciate it. Hey, sounds like a deal. If I'm right on all my predictions, again, Eric Sussman, if I'm wrong, my name's Jerome Powell. Just remember that. Okay. Just, you know, so. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Talk to you soon. You too, Roger. Thanks for having me.